Hi, good afternoon, everyone. I'm Joanna Nesseth with CSIS. Thanks for joining us. I think we'll probably have more people filtering in as we go, but we're going to go ahead and get started. Um, today, we have put together a couple of discussions about the, the hunger situation in North Korea. Um, a number of changes and events last year that have created a lot of concern, a lot of confusion about what's happening. So we've brought together two panel discussions um, about North Korea, which I think are going to be fascinating and electric um, and interesting. So uh, our second panel really is going to look at what's happening on the ground. We've got Mercy Corps and the World Food Program talking about what they're seeing, what they think the hunger situation really is like. Um, but to set the stage, I'm really pleased to have two of probably the leading thinkers on, on this issue with us today. Andrew Natsios was the USAID administrator. He has actually written a book on the Great North Korean Famine, spent a lot of time in the mid-90s responding to the famine in North Korea, and uh, its horrible, horrible impact. And we're going to talk some about that and some about the, 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 the dent and the impact it left on every, every single person in North Korea and how they think and what that might mean in terms of political stability going forward. Um, Victor Cha holds our Korea chair here at CSIS. They both, incidentally, are professors at Georgetown University. Uh, but, but Dr. Cha holds our Korea chair, has done a lot of work, a lot of thinking on, on North Korea, was part of the National Security Council, has dealt with the six-party talks and sort of spent a lot of time thinking about this. So just to uh, offer a couple of thoughts in the beginning, uh, we all, I think, kind of know, have a sense of what's happened over the past few months. North Korea was uh, in the process of some talks about food aid with the U.S. government. About the time when those talks were really starting to, to come through, um, Kim Jong-il died. And what is making things so tenuous now, so the food aid talks ended, we know that last year there was a great deal of hunger. Um, Andrew Natsios was just asking, does it count as a famine or not? Um, doesn't really matter because it means people are dying. People are severely malnourished. There's a lot of stunting. Um, I think probably unimaginable amounts of hunger. Um, so we want to talk a little bit today about what did we learn from the famine in the mid-90s? How is that different or similar to what's happening now? And then what does this level of hunger mean for um, for political stability, and what are some of the regional actors doing, uh, China, South Korea, and how, how is the U.S. responding? So thank you both for joining us. I'm going to just start with you um, to set the stage. You have, uh, as I mentioned, written a book about the North Korean famine. Um, you have spent a lot of time thinking and talking about this. My sense is that it probably left a deep uh, impact on you personally, and it really gets you very, very angry. So I wanted to ask if you could start us off by just talking about what, what you learned in that famine and how it sets the stage for what's happening today. Okay. Uh, without going through the entire, I wrote a paper on it, it's 30 pages long, it's not for, for today, uh, about what's happened to the North Korean people in the last 15 to 20 years. There have been three major shocks. The first was the famine of the mid-90s, then there were the market reforms of 2002, and then the cat catastrophic currency manipulation of January 2010, which I believe set the stage for widespread deaths, not millions, but thousands of deaths from starvation in 2010 and 2011. Now, uh, I, I think there is a humanitarian imperative because the people who die in famines everywhere in the world, not just North Korea, are poor people. 
the greatest theorist in this who won the Nobel Prize, not all, not all the people get Nobel Prizes I admire, but Amartya Sen I do admire. He is the leading theorist. And what he says is there is a direct connection between poverty and political, lack of political power and who dies in a famine. They are directly, his, his book is Poverty and Famines, okay? You cannot use total food supply to determine, you can have, it, he showed you can have an increase in food supply and have massive number of people die of starvation if the poorest people lose their livelihoods or they do not have access to food for, for whatever reason. So uh, what we have to do is look at the infrastructure, the structure of North Korean society to decide whether we're dealing with a lot of very poor, and we are, we are. So, um, but we also know there's a connection between food security and political stability. I wrote an article with one of my graduate students, Kelly Doley, that was in uh, actually your journal um, called The Coming Food Coups. It is a little abstract. Um, it was published in January of 2009 in the Washington Quarterly, and it actually said there are going to be revolutions and upheavals in the world. I don't know if you know this, but in all the countries in the Arab world in which there was revolutions, there was massive food price increases. There was a 600% increase in tomato prices, which is a major staple of the Egyptian crop, six months before uh, the rebellion started in Egypt. There has been a doubling of food prices in um, Khartoum or in northern Sudan in the last year, and there's upheavals going on in northern Sudan now. There are, there are huge food price increases in uh, Yemen, in Tunisia, and in Libya. And uh, we were also seeing large food price increases in North Korea. Totalitarian regimes do not tend to fall as opposed to autocratic regimes that do when these uh, food price increases lead to widespread hunger. That's why North Korea survived so, so far. But there is a clear connection in the mind of the North Koreans. I interviewed refugees who, not refugees, people who were, uh, escaped North Korea and uh, went to, to South Korea who were in the senior, senior party leadership. And they told me they knew what would happen. If we do not keep control, we lose control, one of them said, uh, quoted Kim Jong-il as saying, if the Americans and South Koreans don't hang us, our own people will, because we know what we're going through. And there's this famous speech he gave, Kim Jong-il gave, in December of 2006. It was never clear to me where it came from. They actually have an audio recording in the KCIA, the South Korean CIA. And I couldn't understand how they had, had this. Now that Hwang Jong-yup has died, we know he smuggled it out when he defected. He was the third ranking member of the Politburo. And I talked to one of his assistants. They were obsessed with the famine. And in that speech, he mentions the famine. He calls it the food problem 28 times. He talks about the chaos in the countryside and the train stations, which is what I documented in my book. What's troubling to me now is we are going through a second famine. It's not what it was in terms of the, I estimate at least 10% of the population died, 2.5 million, though Huang Zhongyap was asked here at CSIS last year before he died, how many people died in the North Korean famine? He said three and a half million. Other scholars say, oh, I, we've exaggerated this, only 600 to 900,000 people died. Any number is pretty awful. Now, the question is what's happening right now? And, and we've sent three messages to the North Koreans that are related to each other. The first message, very clear, if you get rid of your nuclear weapons, we will kill you. And where did they get that message from? Libya. And a senior spokesman for the North Korean government said, 
I actually Xeroxed it here, but, but just let me summarize what he said. He said, we now know what happens when you give up your weapons. The United States said drones in and they kill the people who give the weapons up. So our policy of the military first is the best policy given what we now know the incentive structure is in the international system. So we didn't, I don't think that was the message we intended, but that is the message the North Koreans took and it's not an illogical message. We got Gaddafi to give up his weapons of mass destruction and what did we do? We supported his removal and you know what happened to him. He had a, his head blown off. <clears throat> I'm not a fan of Gaddafi. I'm just telling you there, there were messages. These foreign policy is not conducted in isolation. We, so we, all things are connected to everything else. The second message we sent is Steve Bosworth basically said when he left his position, Steve Bosworth was the envoy, that we are connecting 240,000 tons of food that we've pledged to the North Koreans with the nuclear talks. So what's the second message? If you want to eat, build more nuclear weapons. Why would we be, because the famine's been going on for two years, why did we not respond when the famine started if we've depoliticized food aid? We didn't depoliticize food aid, we connected it to the nuclear talks. And the worst possible thing we could do was to connect the two things, because now we've given them an incentive to build more weapons to talk about in these negotiations, because that means you'll get more food. This is not the first time we did this, by the way. In the mid-1990s, we did this repeatedly. We, we actually, every one of the sessions that we had with the North Koreans on the nuclear talks were preceded by shipments of food from, and AID was ordered to do it. AID said, this is crazy to do this, but they were ordered to do it, and they did it. That is a very bad message. It's not in our interests to be connecting the two. And the third message is even more disturbing. We now know how to force the North Koreans to do monitoring or to allow us to do monitoring in the international system. AID negotiated uh, when I was, actually it took place after I left, but we designed the policy. Mike Hess is sitting here and, and his staff designed it. We put it in and we said we're deconnect, we were decoupling the nuclear issue with food aid. Food aid will be based on need and monitoring. If you don't monitor, we're not going to give you any more food because we don't know that the food is, is going to the right people. And if it goes to the security services, we're actually keeping the regime in power, which we do not want to do. Either goes to poor people or not sending the food in. So what happened is the North Koreans twice violated the rules. And what did Mike Hess do? He ordered the ships. Because the North Koreans said, send all the food up front. We said, no, 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 no. We're sending it to you each month. You violate the rules. We will stop the shipments. The ships were about to offload. They violated the rules. The ships were diverted. I did the same thing 20 years ago to Sudan when the Sudanese government confiscated AID food aid and the Angolan government did the same thing uh, in Angola. We did the same thing. We diverted the ships, okay? The North Koreans went wild and they threw us out of the country, which is fine. If, they, if they're interested in feeding poor people, they would not have done that, okay? What have we sent now as a message by connecting the nuclear talks with this? I'll tell you exactly what's going to happen. The North Koreans are interested in survival. They know food aid and food security is threatening their hold on the state. We know that there's been chronic malnutrition now for two generations, and the North Korean soldiers are 10 inches shorter than South Korean soldiers. That means widespread chronic malnutrition through the entire population, except for Pyongyang and the party elite and the secret police. They all eat well in the office of the, of the military. Everybody else is hungry, unless they're merchants or something, okay? So we know they have a chronic, severe problem. It is threatening the survival of the regime. So there's gonna be a huge incentive for them to try to divert that food. When their nuclear talks are going on with the United States, they divert the food, AID will say we're gonna divert the ships, 
And by the way, AID negotiated the toughest of all the monitoring protocols we've ever had were just done. I compliment them on the negotiation, but I guarantee they will not enforce it. Why? Because the State Department will go to AID when they violate the rules and say, you can't divert the ships. We're in the middle of these negotiations. If you divert the ships, they'll walk out of the negotiations, which is exactly what the North Koreans know is going to happen, and they will divert the ships, and there's no enforcement mechanism because we've combined diplomacy and, and, and food aid in an extraordinarily inappropriate way. And the consequence of this will be that a lot of very poor North Koreans with no political power and no income are going to starve to death, or at least be chronically malnourished severely. We don't get this. We don't get this. I don't understand why, you know, Albert Einstein once said, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. We don't need a different, we know what they're going to do. They already did it before. This is not new. 18 years of experience, over and over again, we sent, were sent messages, and now we're ignoring the messages of the last 18 years. I don't understand why we're doing this. So. My conclusion is, I would not go for it now, I'm going to end my talk, but there are 10 monitoring and distribution rules. Distribute all, ship all the food to the east coast, which is, where, which is food insecure, and the northeast, which is the most food insecure, and not to the west coast, which is what we did when I was there. I never actually told anyone. Food for Peace and, 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 and my office said, divert the shipments, because all the shipments were going to Pyongyang, through the WFP and the NGOs, and I said, no more, we're shipping all the food to the area of food insecurity because the transportation system is basically shut down. They can't move the food very far if we ship it up to the Northeast. Two, we shouldn't send any rice in, that's an elite food. We should send bulgur wheat in or corn, that's poor people's food. We should have unlimited access with our own Korea speakers, not translators from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. We know they're not translating what people are telling us. We, eat, we bring our own translators in. We have un, uncontrolled, unlimited access when the distributions are being done. And we not put any food through the public distribution system. If you read Barbara Demick's book, Nothing to Envy, it's a very sad book. It's a very disturbing book. It's a story about six defectors and what they went through in North Korea and what the devastation of the famine was. No food should go through the public distribution system. It is a tool of oppression and control by the regime of the people of North Korea. The elites are rewarded and the poor, poor don't eat because they don't have any power and they don't have access to that system. So uh, there's a whole, uh, there's other rules, but those are suggestions. If we enforce those, we can feed the poor. And if the North Koreans refuse to comply, we should not send any more food to them. Well, and we're going to have a chance to talk a little bit more about what, what, what are sort of the best approaches to take. Um, Victor, I want to give you a chance both to respond to what Andrew said, but also um, would like to have you talk some about the, some of the economic decisions the North Korean government has made that have put them in this terrible situation. Um, um, thanks, Joanna. I, well, the first thing, let me just, he, Andrew mentioned interpreters. Let me just tell a quick interpreter story. We were um, once in a round of six-party talks where we were in a bilateral meeting with our North Korean counterparts and we're talking to them about the need to engage with Japan on the abductions issue, you know, Japan being at that time the second largest economy in the world right on North Korea's doorstep. This made a lot of sense. And, and, and uh, then our North Korean counterpart listened to this. Um, then he launched into what was really a, basically a five-minute diatribe 
about how they didn't want to work with Japan, all this sort of stuff. And, um, uh, and a, a number of us on the delegation could understand what he was saying. But, um, uh, but Chris, Chris Hill, who was uh, the lead um, negotiator, couldn't. And so he went through this five-minute thing, and then he finishes. And then the interpreter gets on the mic, and she goes, we don't like it. That was all she said after the five-minute diatribe. So there is there is something to to having your own interpreters as opposed to foreign ministry North Korean interpreters um, involved in any operation. Um, I do have some comments about what what Andrew has said. I don't disagree with anything that he said, but let me start first with um, uh, the initial question that Johanna asked me about how you know how we ended up in this place with North Korea and. Um, and I think it's largely because you know they they you know they took a lot of very bad decisions, economic decisions in their lifetime, right? Since the country was created in 1948, um, and um, they're really, if you could sort of boil them down to five, five really bad decisions. Um, uh, the first bad decision they made was that they decided um, uh, to do consecutive five-year economic plans at the beginning of this country totally focused on heavy industry, right? No focus on agriculture whatsoever. Didn't make a lot of sense because the northern part of the peninsula is uh, um, um, not the breadbasket of the country, right? The southern part of the peninsula is really the breadbasket of the country. Um, and so they, you know, that, that was not a smart decision. And yet they made that decision to do these five-year economic plans very focused on, on heavy industry. Um, the Soviet Union actually was so uncomfortable with these plans that in their second five-year plan, the Soviets cut aid uh, or cut assistance to North Korea, which then led the DPRK to make the second bad economic decision, which was um, if, if, you get a, if you get a decrease in the inputs into the economy, that is sometimes an incentive for change or it's in particular an incentive for innovation. Um, technological innovation, importing better technology. But the North Koreans do, didn't do that. They tried to make up the shortfall by pushing their people harder, right? So the second bad e uh, economic decision they made was something called the Cholima Movement, which was essentially an effort to try to make up for production gaps by saying, work harder for Kim Il-sung, right? Don't work eight hours for Kim Il-sung, work 18 hours for Kim Il-sung. Um, and, and so naturally that, put a, that uh, may have increased productivity initially, but in the end it was working the people harder. It was obviously an instrument in political control, but it was it, eventually you were also wearing down whatever technology or industry that you had. Right? So that was the second bad economic decision. Uh, all this time, of course, not at all prioritizing at all the agriculture sector. Um, the third bad decision they made was that when they started running out of money, uh, they decided to borrow money. Right? This was in the early, 19, er, early to mid-1970s. It was a time of detente uh, in the international system, and they got access to hundreds of millions of dollars uh, in credits uh, from European countries and others. Right? And then, of course, they defaulted on all those debts. Right? <clears throat> um, so that was the third bad economic decision they made. The fourth bad economic decision they made came in the 1980s, um, and it was largely because, as you all remember, in 1988, um, uh, South Korea got the Olympics, right? Um, they, they, they were in 1988, but the decision was made in, like, 1981, 
right? So for all the 1980s, the North Koreans had what was the equivalent of Olympic envy, right? Um, they were not the country hosting the Olympics. So they undertook six or seven mega projects, which were to try to compensate for the Olympics. Mega pro ridiculous projects, right? Um, that had to do with land reclamation, had to do with their own world festival, um, uh, massive hydropower projects, all of which failed spectacularly. Right? Um, so that was their first, fourth bad economic decision, and, and it brought them to the point in the 1990s where you know, their economy was run down, uh, uh, they were having less and less food to distribute, and then the, um, um, and then the floods come right, in the 1990s. And the combination of the floods and all these bad economic decisions puts us in the position that we're now in, uh, in, terms of, um, in terms of their, uh, their food shortfalls. On the points that Andrew made, the only thing that I would add is, um, so it, it is a definition of insanity if you do the same thing um, for 18 years and expect to get a different result. We've been negotiating the nuclear thing for over 25 years the same way getting the same result, and this time we hope it's going to be different. So we, we are as guilty of insanity as uh, the people who negotiate on the food side. Um, the one thing that I would add, I think, that um, about uh, the, the, the point I really was interested in, I mean, they were all interesting, but this point about 600% food increase, uh, price of food increases in Egypt prior to, to what happened there, that to me is very interesting because um, I think that what we're seeing in North Korea in terms of this transition of leadership is not going to last. I mean, I don't think that they can carry this off. I mean, they've done well so far. Uh, uh, you know, it looks like this young son is able to handle the situation so far. But we have to remember it's only seven weeks, right? It's only seven weeks. Um, South Korean governments in their own history, transitional governments lasted seven months, 13 months before they collapsed. So, and, and you can, you, there are a list of countries that you can come up with where transitional governments lasted months before they collapsed. So we're nowhere near out of the, uh, the tunnel on this. Um, and I think the problem they face, the regime faces in terms of political c control, in addition to this increase in food prices, is the ideology of the country, right? You cannot, in North Korea, you cannot have a new leader without a new, new ideology. The ideology of this country is not moving in the direction of reform and opening. Right. On, the, on the contrary, it's moving in exactly the opposite direction. It's becoming more hardline. It's going back to things like Cholima, you know, one of these bad economic decisions they made. It's going back to sort of 1950s vintage Kim Il-sungism. Right. At the same time that the leadership is moving in that direction, the society, largely because they were starving, had to survive, and they started creating markets to survive. Right. They started creating black markets, whatever markets, whatever they could sell to get food they were doing. So society is moving in one direction while the politics of the country is moving in another. And this is very different from the mid-1990s. The mid-1990s when Kim Il-sung died, there was no market mentality in North Korea among the people. But there really is today. We learn it from the defectors. There really is today. And that's a dynamic that just cannot be sustained. Right? Eventually it's going to come apart. And that in combination with this, you know, with these increases in food prices, this is a very um, um, a powerful confluence of forces that doesn't spell well for the future of the regime. Well, and Victor, you've said um, a couple of things. You, you wrote in a New York Times op-ed recently that it's going to be months, if not weeks, 
uh, that the regi new regime will last. But you've also said, I think after the mid-90s famine, you know, it was just shocking to anyone who watched how there couldn't have been an uprising. How could people have watched all of their families die, all, you know, third of their community die, um, and not do something about it? And I think everyone that I've spoken to or, or read about has, has talked about how indelibly that famine marked every single person in the country. So I, I wondered if you could both talk a little bit more about what you think, you know, are, are the people at this point just going to say enough, we're not doing it anymore, or will they just find ever more creative ways to dodge the system? Uh, Victor, you've, you've said also in the past that the strength of the North Korean government is the weakness of its people. So I'm wondering how weak are the people now and at what point do you actually see some sort of change? It was an uprising. It was an It was a, a coup plot. I think it was directly related to the famine because the famine epicenter at that point in 1995 was in the northeast region. It was most severely affected, and it, it's described in um, uh, Don Oberdorfer's book, The Two Koreas. It's I think Sixth Corps in the northeast. Uh, now, I looked at where their units were, at least to the extent that we know it publicly, and I asked some North Kore South Korean intelligence people about this, and they said several things. And I interviewed some defectors. One defector's friend watched 20 officers taken out in chains who apparently were in the coup plot, and I don't think he saw them actually being shot, but they were shot. <clears throat> um, and then they disbanded Sixth Corps and dispersed the units and put them through political education. Now, do we know for sure that it was the famine that caused this? No, but I, if Hum Hung City, according to the research that I did from interviews with, uh, may have had a death rate of 40%. It was the worst affected city in the whole country, and that's in the Northeast. It's the largest uh, industrial city in the country. Uh, in terms of uh, popular uprising, we actually did have one. In January, December of, of uh, 2009 and January of 2010, when the regime announced supposedly currency reforms, which in fact was a massive theft of the savings of North Korean people. Now, Victor is more of an economist than I am, uh, and, and I could go through all the things they did, but they basically cleaned everybody's accounts out. And they made it illegal to hold foreign currency beyond $50 or something. Now, the interesting thing is there were, riot, there were demonstrations. They burned down a party headquarters. Uh, and there were graffiti written against the regime. Never happened. You'd never see that before. Now, what tells us most about the severity of the reaction is what the North Korean government did. I am not aware, and Victor's a much greater scholar in this than I am, of any instance where the North Korean government apologized for anything. Within two months, they rescinded the rules and they executed publicly the 78 or 79-year-old director of finance and the finance ministry who was blamed for putting this into effect. In fact, he was just a scapegoat. So whenever they have a problem, they, oh, it was a bureaucracy that did it, and they take someone out and shoot them in public to send a little message to relieve public pressure. Well, why did they back down on the reforms and then rescind them and then execute? Well, because there's popular pressure. There's an, uh, literally not an uprising of the kind we saw in Egypt, but we did see popular discontent on a scale that we, I don't think we ever saw since the founding of the North Korean state, which would indicate to me exactly 
Victor's observation that North Korean society is moving exactly the opposite direction. There are five or 600,000 cell phones in North Korea now. There is still movement across the Chinese border. The North Koreans know that the regime is lying to them about conditions. They used to, the refugees that I talked to said, oh, we were told the Chinese are all starving to death and we're doing well in North Korea when all the people were dying. We all go to China. There's not one hungry person in the border area of China. And we know the South Koreans are richer, much richer, than the Chinese are, because we saw it on television when we went to China. So at least a million people went across the border and back and forth. They saw the lies. And I, I interviewed people. I said, did you tell your neighbors? And they said, of course we did. We told them the regime has been lying to us all these years about the conditions outside of North Korea. So the regime propaganda is no longer useful as a tool of control. After um, Kim Jong-il died, you know, I was just inundated with press inquiries because, you know, there are not many of us who do this topic, right? <laughs> so, uh, um, and they were, you know, one of, one of the questions they always asked was, so what's the legacy of Kim Jong-il, right? What's his legacy? Um, and the immediate answer is, of course, well, you know, he, nuclear weapons. I mean, he did everything else wrong, but the one thing he created for North Korea was nuclear weapons. Um, but I think that this, there's, this, this, there's another legacy that he's created that's even more important, and that is this point about markets. I mean, markets, the creation of a market mentality in North Korea is Kim Jong-il's legacy because, you know, it was under his watch that the economy got run into the ground, um, and it was under his watch that the ration system, the public distribution system for food, broke down, right? And once that broke down, people were on their own. And what did they do to survive? They started selling, trading, whatever they could. Right? Um, so I think in terms of this whole question of resistance, the, um, uh, I mean, the short answer, Johanna, is we don't really know, right? I mean, uh, it doesn't look like there is a lot of popular resistance, certainly not along the lines of what we've seen in the Middle East. But we really don't know. I mean, I think Andrew's right. The, there's, um, in, the, in the book that I have coming out, I try to list all the um, information we have on possible signs of resistance um, against the North Korean government that we picked up through the press and, and you know, all, all on the unclassified <laughs> side that we picked up through the press and everything. And if you look at that list, it's interesting that uh, the area where you see a, a lot of locus of activity is Hamhong, Hamhong City, which is, of course, the area where the food situation is, is quite bad. So there's definitely a correlation between people's <coughs> resist the food situation and people's resist resistance. Um, um, and, you know, we can't confirm any of these reports, but, and we don't know if they represent the smoke or the fire, right? We don't know whether this is sort of just, you know, isolated or this represents a lot more. So I think it's hard for us to say that the people have not resisted. Uh, it's just that the government is so good at covering up a lot of these things. Right, and you can obviously never know what's going to happen, but North Korea, it's especially, it's just so opaque that it's, it's reading smoke signals, as you said. Um, now, are cell phones legal in North Korea? Um, they're, they're, so, actually, the, um, the, what I read the other day was Arascom, the Egyptian cell company, has the monopoly on the cell phone market in North Korea. The deal was that they got, they got it in return for refurbishing, you know, this huge hotel they were trying to build in North Korea. <laughs> Right, this huge hotel they were trying to build in North Korea, which they stopped building. It looks like something out of Star Wars, like Darth Vader would inhabit it. Esquire magazine called it the worst building in the history of mankind. <laughs> um, uh, but so it was, they stopped construction on it, and it was, 
any of you who've been to North Korea, you can't miss it because it just stands out uh, above the skyline of the city. Uh, it's ridiculous. And um, so Araskan, basically, the deal was they got the exclusive cell phone market contract if they would refurbish the outside of the building. So the outside of this building now has mirrors on it, all, you know, all courtesy of Araskan. Araskan re registered, apparently, their one millionth cell phone um, customer uh, this year, uh, but but the, you know, but this is all you know. It's an internal cell phone system. It's not external. Uh, but if if uh, um, uh, but people who go to the border say that you know you can call in if you have a right SIM card, you can call in and call into China. So, well, that's interesting. I hadn't known that. Um, I wanted to go back um, and just throw out one one question that I always think about when you when you look at sort of the devaluation of the currency and the just the terrible idea that was. I always wonder is again, is this a conspiracy or was just was it just complete incompetence that actually someone thought this was a good idea and that it would work, or was it actually a, an, an sort of an effort toward political control? Well, th there are several theories as to why they did it. Some brain dead idiot did it actually. But the, the first is that they were simply trying to loot the savings accounts of all the people in the country because they needed the money particularly for the, which anniversary, was it Kim Jong-il, Kim Il-sung's oh, yeah, anniversary? Yeah. They had to have a big celebration. They didn't have money in the hundred years when he was born. And they needed money for the celebration. That was one of the justifications for this. But it wasn't official. It was just a, a theory by some South Korean intellectuals and some of our scholars. The second theory is uh, that the regime was getting very, very upset over these markets wanted to reestablish control, what's the best way to shut down is to destroy your currency. You can't run a efficient market without a currency. You can do trading, barter stuff, but barter stuff is really very inefficient as a, as a market mechanism. So how do, you, how do you destroy the markets and savings? You destroy the currency, which is what they did, which is what they did. And they were nervous, uh, the third argument is they were very offended at the disparity of wealth developing. Because the merchants now are no longer dependent on the state for their survival and they're amassing wealth. Now, the economist interviewed one doctor, woman doctor, in her mid-40s. She said they destroyed my, because she wasn't smart enough to keep her money in something other than North Korean currency. A lot of the traders never had, they kept their money in dollars or in Chinese currency, even though it was illegal to do it technically, um, to have more than a certain amount. Punishable by death. Um, but people do it anyway. So. She said, I had $20,000 in the account, the equivalent of $20,000, and it's completely gone. That was for my retirement. I have no retirement. I have no buffer. If food prices dramatic, she didn't say the rest of this, but we can surmise. Food prices massively increase. I don't grow food. I'm a doctor. I'm in trouble. Anybody's in trouble without savings. The people, the reason people were amassing savings is that the ones who survived the famine said, we're not going through this again. There's a, several books that have been written on the Chinese famine of 58 to 62, two new books, one by Frank Dakota, and there, I can't pronounce the Chinese scholar who who's took it at enormous risk, and he's okay. He's, <laughs> he took official party documents and recorded the, the devastation of the Great Leap Forward famine that Mao caused, in which now both Dakota and this Chinese scholar estimate 45 million people died in four years. Amartya Sen said it was 29 million. Now the demographic stuff suggests the worst famine in recorded history, none of which was caused by a war or a drought or crop failure. It was Mao's policy, okay? Uh, there is a, a, a scholar, Chinese scholar at Harvard, 
who wrote a book about what happened after the famine. What happened after the famine is, in the worst affected provinces, the Chinese governors said, we are not going to go through this again. This was in the mid-60s, during the Cultural Revolution. They said, we're not going through this again. We are going to begin to reform the agricultural system without the approval of Beijing or the Ministry of Agriculture. And they began to do it, and he, he documents it in this book. Uh, his name is Dali Yang, Dali Yang, very good book. And the revolution of Deng Xiaoping was not Deng Xiaoping's. It was the farmers and the party officials in these remote provinces that were devastated by the Chinese famine who said, we're going to start experimenting on our own. On our own, so we don't have to go through this again. I think what's happening is Victor's absolutely right. Markets are developing, people are finding mechanisms for not relying on the state. They are now doing exactly what the Chinese did. They are preparing to protect themselves against the insanity of the government's behavior, and they are no longer not, they are a middle-class opposition group to the regime. That's what's happened. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I, I mean, I, I agree that, uh, I mean, th this wasn't the first time that the regime had used um, currency revaluation as an instrument of political control, right. basically to punish entrepreneurs, right? It was, it, that's, that was a big part of it. And, um, there's some testimonials that um, you can read. Um, um, some of them are in this book, but the uh, New York Times had some of, of pe what people did when they found out that all of a sudden, you know, their life savings of $3,500 was now worth, going to be worth only about $350. And that was only the part that they could actually, because there was a limit on how much you could exchange. It was like it, it had been devalued, could only exchange a certain amount. And so the rest of your money was worthless, totally worthless. So people just started bicycling as fast as they could to the local market to try to buy things to put value, you know, have that as value as opposed to this worthless currency. And it's just these horrible stories of people going there to buy, you know, anything they could find. The markets were just crazy. Um, something that wouldn't have normally cost them something like, you know, maybe the equivalent of $60 they had to pay $6,000 for because, you know, because of the inflation prices. And then the, the authorities came to try to shut down the markets because, you know, the, and, and the people revolted. I mean, the shopkeepers and the shoppers said they just revolted against them. So these were more cases of these, this, sort of, um, this sort of resistance. Um, I guess one of the corollary questions out of this discussion is, so if this is how bad it is, I mean, is this new leadership going to try to do things differently, right? Are they going to try to think of a way to do, do things differently? And this, I think, relates well to the story that Andrew was telling about China. Um, um, you know, many of my friends who are China scholars here in the United States, we always have debates because I'm very pessimistic on the future of North Korea, and they're totally optimistic, right? They're like, it'll be all right. I mean, they'll, you know. I was like, what makes you so optimistic? And I realized it's because they study China, right? And they saw China reform. So they're like, if China can, I mean, they don't say this, but basically they're saying if China can do this, I mean, surely North Korea can do it. I mean, if China can do it. And then I thought about that and I thought, you know, maybe it was the farmers, maybe it wasn't Deng Xiaoping, but Deng Xiaoping is certainly was the political faceplate for modernization and reforms. And he was a charismatic leader. This 20-something-year-old, this overweight 20-something-year-old is not a charismatic leader in North Korea. Right? Right. Puffy, <laughs> uh, be politically correct. Puffy is not a charismatic leader. Um, the other thing is that 
even if they're interested in reform, some sort of reform, you know, what naturally, economic reform, what naturally comes with economic reform is you have to give up some political control, right? That's just what naturally comes with it. And the Chinese were willing to do that because they said to get rich is glorious, right? They said that was important. Um, there's no one in, nor in the North Korean leadership today that thinks money is more important than political control. They already have money for themselves. But, you know, the most valued commodity, particularly in this transition process, you know, from a suddenly deceased dictator to an inexperienced son, the last thing they want to give up is political control. So it's hard for me to imagine, even though this young fellow was apparently educated in Switzerland for two years of his life, likes the NBA, has apparently gone to an exhibition, NBA Europe game, likes the Lakers, likes the Bulls, all this sort of stuff, that is in itself not enough to create an enlightened leader who's going to sort of sweep in and change everything. It's just, to me, it's just so idealistic to think that. Yeah, a lot of 10-year-olds like the Lakers, too, but that yeah, doesn't make them yeah. competent. Um, I think I, I want to open audience questions in a minute, but I have a couple more things I wanted you both to comment on. One is um, sort of what are the other regional players doing? What's, what, you know, is, I, I know I understand China is trying to inter, sort of talk through how you could introduce some economic reforms. You've got the Japanese, the South Koreans, all in the, in the U.S. So I'd like maybe Victor to comment on that. And then I'd like you both to talk a little bit about what the structure of a uh, uh, Victor, you talked about the 2008 agreement was a good, you, you felt a fairly good agreement. Talk a little bit about a, the structure of a good agreement and then um, comment on sort of, y you have heard a lot of briefings from NGOs and other folks coming through talking to government officials and comment on what you hear and how that resonates as a government official. So I'll wrap those together. In terms of the regional reactions, I mean, I think thus far, um, you know, it's interesting. I mean, we're at this, his, you know, really this historic moment where a dictator in North Korea has suddenly died. Nobody, nobody expected this to happen the way it did. Uh, and yet the regional reaction has been nobody wants to touch it. Everybody wants to stay away. I mean, if you listen to our government, the U.S. government, we say, you know, we, what we are in favor of is stability, peace, you know, no provocations from North Korea. So, you know, essentially saying, yeah, we hope this goes well, right? We hope this succession process goes well. I mean, essentially, that's what, that's what we're saying. I'm going to get in trouble for that, I know. Um, uh, but, but that's essentially what we're saying. And on the side of China, there are really no, I mean, the Chinese have been very clear and forthright in terms of, you know, wanting to see this transition go well. They, they were the first to name Kim Jong-un, recognize him as the leader. Uh, they were the first ones to invite him to, to their capital for, um, for a visit in his capacity as head of the country. Uh, but the Chinese also know very little about what's going on, and therefore their reaction is exactly the same, which is they don't want to, they don't want to, they want to sort of stay away. The interesting thing in terms of the, the, the nuclear diplomacy is that uh, when you talk to China about the nuclear diplomacy, it's like a broken record. Whatever the problem is, they could have done a missile test, they could have done um, a, a second nuclear test. I was in government for the first one. Um, but the Chinese reaction is always the same, which is you just got to talk to them, get back to diplomacy. The interesting thing after the death of Kim Jong-un is they're not saying that anymore. Uh, and I think it's in part because they had a particular algorithm in their mind about how 
North Korea talking to the United States usually pacifies North Korea. They don't do missile tests. They don't do nuclear tests. But I think they have no idea about what's going on with this new young fellow. They don't know if they're going to get the same reaction. So they've actually backed off, and they haven't said anything about, um, about, uh, uh, about diplomacy. The U.S. government, on the other hand, has been pretty clear about our interest in getting back to, to the talks um, and, uh, uh, you know, using food as the, as, the, as the way to get back to this dialogue and essentially is in a wait-and-see mode, um, uh, leaving the same offers on the table uh, and waiting for the dust to settle in Pyongyang before they re-engage in some sort of, in some sort of uh, uh, negotiation. Which I think on the one hand is fine if that's sort of the decision that, that the interagency has come to, that's sort of fine. On the other hand, I think it's important to also begin serious discussions to the extent possible and planning with uh, the Koreans and particularly with the Chinese in case this thing comes apart. I mean, just like nobody could predict uh, what would cause, what would be the trigger in the Arab Spring, we have no idea what could be the trigger here. And, and that's where I think um, on, the, on, the, on the official side, we may be a little bit deficient. We're not doing that as much as we, we should. So. Could I just add, I think we could do a series of things on the humanitarian side beyond food aid, detached from the nuclear issue that would not strengthen the regime, that would deal with the condition of poor children, for example, immunization campaigns, mm -hmm. water programs, the water condition, the, the quality of the water is terrible in North Korea, and that's a source mm -hmm. of actually much of the communicable disease that's killing so many people. There are things we could do that do not improve the, the, the um, unless, you, unless you think killing all the children will mean there's no troops for the army later on which is such a barbaric thought. I mean, I can't imagine any policymaker, no matter how much, and I despise this North Korean regime. I mean, it is one of the most brutal regimes. Its human rights record is the worst in, in any of the communist countries. It is the worst record. If you, you really should read, I read Barbara Remick's book, and I, Robert Demick's book, I was, and I wrote about this stuff and interviewed people myself. It's a very depressing book, very depressing book level of repression and brutality is unimaginable. Uh, the U.S. The Committee on Human Rights in North Korea, and I noticed my, the co-chairman of the committee, Roberta Cohen, sitting here, has produced a lot of reports. They're online. Read them. They're done by scholars on how bad things are in the forced labor camps, in the prison system. Most people go into the prisons, they die of starvation because the, the ration they're given is not sufficient to live. If you read Aquariums of Pyongyang, which is a story of a, a, a family that was in one of these prisons, there was one girl who was in good shape in the prison. And they couldn't understand why, and they watched. She took her ration, which is not enough to live on, and she caught rats. She killed the rats, and she ate raw rat meat. She, she uh, sewed the rat skins together and made uh, um, socks and gloves for her hands. And if you can get the rat food down, it's uncooked. That's how she was in good shape. Usually they, use, they lose their, their, their bones, become brittle, they lose their teeth, they lose their hair, then they starve to death. That's what happens. There are 200,000 people in those camps, or more than that, mm -hmm. we think. And the conditions are absolutely appalling. The human rights issue should be put on the table with the North Koreans. And we have not done that, and we ought to do it now. 
On that note, I think, Victor, talking about, you, you hear these stories as people have come through town. What, what your reaction ends up being in, in government? Um, I think Andrew's right. I mean, this issue should be put on the agenda, you know, if and when we re-engage with North Korea. Um, uh, as we all know, there is now a North Korean, uh, an envoy, a U.S. envoy for North Korean human rights abuses. Uh, under the Bush administration was Jay Lefkowitz, and under the Obama administration has been Bob King. Um, um, I think, I mean, I think, personally, I think Bob King's great. I mean, I think he, you know, longtime aide to Tom Lantos. Tom Lantos has traveled to North Korea, was really the only U.S. official that's ever had a genuine dialogue about human rights in North Korea because he started out his conversation by saying, um, I'm a Holocaust survivor, right? And, uh, and that changed the entire nature of the conversation with the North Koreans. So I think King's wonderful. I mean, I, I, I think the problem right now is that um, we've been so focused on food as a way to sort of help us get back to the talks that his portfolio has shifted from human rights to really humanitarian assistance, and, and, which is, was not the way Congress intended for the position to be, to be used. Um, um, but, I mean, if there's anybody good at using people, it's the North Koreans. And the North Koreans have been very good at using, uh, uh, you know, well-intended folks from the NGO community who go over to North Korea to try to assess the food situation uh, and uh, allow them to come back to tell a story about how things are really bad. Um, uh, over the past year, we've had all of the groups have asked to come through CSIS to brief us on their, on their situation. And um, uh, this was at a time when the administration was not budging on the food issue. And I think one of the practical problems that we saw in terms of these well-meaning groups when they came back was uh, they all came and they came to Washington to tell their story. And this was, you know, the, the American NGOs, it was the elders, it was a, a bunch, of, even Valerie Amos, a bunch of different groups who came through. And it was very clear they were being given the same story to tell. Um, taken to the same places, shown the same pictures, shown the same um, infirmaries and things. So the problem was that f the practical problem I saw for the NGO, and I wanted them to succeed in terms of their message, the practical problem I saw was that because they were given the same story and they'd come through Washington to tell their story and they'd tell all the groups that had links to policy, you know, the, uh, these groups, we had heard this story at least three times already from the previous group that had come through. Um, so the problem, I think, within the D.C. community was that we got a little bit of, I don't know what you call it, NGO fatigue from hearing the same story over and over again. And, of course, the only way it eventually moved was when there was, a, you know, there was this connection between this issue and the nuclear issue. Now, in defense, I, I mean, I don't work for this administration, but I have nothing against this administration. In defense of the administration, one, when they've been asked this question, one of the things they say unofficially is they say, we're not using food politically, right? There's only one country in the world that uses food politically, and that's North Korea. And we're just, we're just trying to work with, respond to what they do. So that's what they would say in defense, and I'll leave the rebuttal to Andrew. <laughs> the currency manipulation scheme was two years ago this month. And the food crisis was in 2010 and 11. It's taken two years for people to find out in Washington that there's a serious crisis in the food situation. 
Why did two years? You know, you know, AID does this within months, even before the food crisis starts. We have the famine early warning system all over the world. We know before these things peak or before people start dying that there's a problem, and we respond through the NGO community, the World Food Program, UNICEF, and the Red Cross movement. We know how to do this, okay? They drag their heels in the administration. Now, I understand why. You get tired of this with the North Koreans. You do. Tired dealing with their, their bullshit rhetoric, frankly. And, and the fact is, they caused the problem. This is not poor people in a remote area that have no, the, the regime could have invested money in agriculture. They could have privatized land. They could have done a lot of things, and they have done none of those things because they're more interested in keeping control than keeping their own people alive. That's the problem. The regime is the problem, indisputably. It is their fault. That does not mean, however, the next step logically is to say, well, therefore, we will deny them food aid. That's like blaming the Jews for the Holocaust in Germany. That's ridiculous. They're the victims. The poor that we're supposed to feed are the victims that we're trying to save. Why are we penalizing the people who are suffering? Now, I'm, I say if the North Koreans do not follow the 10 rules I've laid down, and I've given the talk at USIP and other places, the administration's seen the list. It's not a mystery, okay? If they violate the rules, stop the shipments. Very simple. And the North Koreans will know it clearly and unmistakably ahead of time. If you violate the rules, we will shut the program down because then we don't know where the food's going. Otherwise, we will distribute the food. One way of distributing food to make sure it's eaten is you cook the food. Now, it would take a much larger staff. Do it through the schools, cook the food, because cooked food doesn't last very long. You can't send it to the markets because it rots, okay? And we did this in Somalia. We've done it a whole bunch of places. It takes a large infrastructure to do it. Tell the North, you want to feed your kids? We'll do it. We're going to cook the food in the schools and watch them eat it. All right, I want to open to a couple questions now um, before we head to our next panel. And I think um, we've got a lot of impassioned and sometimes, you know, entertaining comments. But the, the fact is that no doubt everyone here knows that this is an absolutely atrocious situation. It is horrendous. And my, my guess would be that once um, people are finally able to, to look around in North Korea, it's going to be worse than we even ever imagined. Um, so on that note, why don't we take a couple of questions and before we head to our next panel? Who wants to start? Uh, in the back, if you can wait for a microphone and then identify your name and affiliation. Um, Steve Luckett. I'm a producer here in the city, news producer here in the city. Um, thanks so much for the uh, forum. Thoroughly, thoroughly appreciated. Um, the aquariums of Pyongyang, indeed, uh, a very disturbing piece. And I guess my question is, in a sense, born of that and a few of the stories that I've covered since I got into television. Um, in my lifetime, there's been Operation Paul Bunyan, um, a series of to say the least, pretty erratic leaders in North Korea. Um, to what extent could it be said that the United States, and really, I guess, the world, um, has been held hostage by uh, the regimes in North Korea? All right, let me just see if there's one more question we can add on to that, uh, right here in the middle. Hi, Sarah Yoon with uh, Korea Economic Institute. Um, so I, from the talks, I see that a lot of issues are connected, the nuclear issue to the food, to the human rights, to food security. Uh, so, and, and there was also mention of this rise of um, the, the legacy of Kim Jong-il with the markets. So, so are there any connections between the, the growth or the existence of markets and the, its influence on food security in North Korea? 
Um, I'll let Andrew take the, the question on the linkage between markets and food, um, food security. I, on uh, the question, of, well, so Operation Paul Bunyan, as you all know, was the operation that was undertaken by the United States after the Poplar Tree Incident in 1976, where um, a U.S. unit was going to trim poplar trees in the DMZ area because they were trying to clear a line of sight to a North Korean guard post. And they were attacked by a premeditated attack by a group of North Koreans, and they axed, they hacked the soldiers to death. And then, so the Nixon administration um, did a major operate, major military mobilization um, to basically go in and chop down that tree. Um, and it was known as Operation Paul Bunyan. Um, in, it, I think the 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 response I have to the question is, you know. Why is the United, does the United States allow itself basically to be yanked around by a country like North Korea? And, you know, I've thought about this question a lot, right, both, you know, when I was working on the policy in the government and outside of it. And, you know, the conclusion I've come to is a really very simple one. And um, I, I see it as simple. Maybe some people would see it as elegant. But it's simply that the, the reason this happens is that we don't care enough about the issue, right? I mean, it is not, this is not Iraq. It's not Afghanistan. It's not the Middle East peace process. It's just not, it just doesn't register like that. Because when an issue registers like that on the U.S. foreign policy agenda, not only are you willing to devote reasons, but you're willing to fight for it, right? Um, and I think the problem, and North Korea has become very good at this. What happens is they do a provocation, um, and our leaders basically then are at the point where they say, are we going to deal with this seriously? Or are we going to just try to park it for now so that we don't have to worry about it so we can focus on Iraq, Afghanistan, the economy, the election, you know, whatever. And, you know, I would say not nine times, but ten times out of ten, the answer is always to park it. And park it usually means giving them a little bit of food so they don't do another nuclear test. Uh, engaging our, our, their diplomats with ours in a protracted negotiation so they don't do a provocation. Uh, but there's never really a solution, right? There's never a solution. It's just kind of muddling through. And the North Koreans have become very good at sort of using this uh, to try to get what they want. Anytime they feel a need to, um, to get something, you know, they'll do some sort of provocation. Now, they, they came very close to miscalculating uh, in 2010 where they, when they sunk the South Korean naval vessel and then they fired artillery on the South Korean island because the South Korean government is now in a position where the next uh, uh, provocation against the South, they're going to respond to militarily. Right? They're not going to be yanked around um, anymore. And the, the thing that concerns me is, so here you have this 28, 29-year-old who is now basically in charge of everything that is going to be making decisions. And so um, no offense to any of you younger people in the audience, but, you know, these 20-something-year-olds generally make mistakes when they make decisions. And he's going to make a mistake uh, that could be quite disastrous. And he may so. be pushed to make Or he could be pushed to make a mistake, yeah. Something, I think we're being a little unfair to Marshall Kim. He has extensive training on his game. He loves video games. That is his, I mean, they actually said that in the paper in North Korea, has extensive military experience from playing video games. And that's how he makes decisions. But to answer the question about the markets, we know 
that there was widespread diversion of food. There was food aid diversion. And you know what happened to the food aid? It went to the markets. The fact that the regime's system is breaking down and their discipline is breaking down, which is how people leave North Korea and go to China, they bribe the guards, the guards go to North Korea, I mean to China, because they're hungry too. The military's hungry. We have reports of the military raiding people's homes systematically in the Northeast where the logistics system is so poor. So, so we know that the markets were originally driven 15 years ago by food. That was the principal thing in the markets, even though it was illegal to sell grains. We also know, or we don't know, I surmise from a bunch of things that about 1.2 million tons of corn was diverted from the corn crop. It was green corn because it was harvested before it was ripe. And it was the, that uh, food was taken out of the system and it helped collapse the PDS, the public distribution system. It made itself to the markets. Because it was impossible if, uh, you know, I did the calculations to have, for the farmers to have consumed all that food. They had to have sent it to the markets. And so the markets were, were actually stimulated by a collapse of the old order. Now, there's lots of other things being sold in the markets now that are not food related. They're from imports from China. And the accusation of the, China, of the North Koreans is China's dumping all their inferior stuff on the North Koreans. And there's a lot of resentment over it. Um, so how is the markets relating to people's uh, ability to deal with food insecurity? Because it becomes a cash economy that allows them to, until the currency reforms, to save money as a buffer against food shocks. Most normal people, if they've been through a crisis and survived, will anticipate the next crisis by preparing for it in some way that allows them to survive. And what happened in China in the 1960s was precisely that, okay? That's happening in North Korea in a very different way. What's taken the place of the agricultural reforms in, in China, in the rural areas, uh, in the remote areas of China that were affected by the famine most severely, is the, the, the merchant class in North Korea, which is quite large now, uh, are protecting themselves by becoming business people, entrepreneurs. Uh, and the most interesting thing is a lot of the entrepreneurs are women who are the wives of members of the uh, military officers and cadres. So there's a little bit of tension between when they raid these markets, because the North Koreans do, that they're actually attacking members of the elite. They're not all completely independent of the regime. And that, of course, is... And we've heard another report, pretty, pretty good sources, that they're beginning to purge, not shoot, but just retire early, all the local officials at the bond level and then the municipal level and then at the provincial level and putting in loyalists to this kid, Kim, Kim Jong-un. And the new people, the new younger people who are loyal to Kim Jong-un are being sent to China for study tours. Hundreds of them are. By the way, that's what we did with the Marshall Plan. We brought the Europeans to see our industrial complex in the late 1940s. That was one of the major technical assistance programs of the Marshall Plan was to show them how we had a much more modern infrastructure, industrial infrastructure than they did. And they took back the industrial design of our factories to Europe when they rebuilt Europe, okay? Now I'm not saying they're going that far in China and North Korea, but they are seeing what the Chinese did. If they do this in a large enough scale, it could cause um, a revolution from the bottom. 
which is maybe why they're doing it. I don't know why they're just very interesting, but it's being orchestrated from the top. It may be the Chinese required this to be happened. I've heard this story. If you want the food we're about to give you, you need to bring all these young uh, political figures from the local level to China to see what we've done. That's the, the, the deal. I don't know if that's real enough speculation that that second part of it is actually happening. And, and you know, it just takes that little crack, right? That's all it really takes. I mean, there's, um, um, there's this famous story about choco pies. Have any of you heard the story about choco pies in North Korea? So choco pies are basically the Korean equivalent of moon pies, right? They're like a chocolate-covered wafer with marshmallow on the inside, very popular among youth in South Korea, actually in, in most of South, Southeast Asia as well. If you get them at the local 7-Eleven in South Korea, they cost about 45 cents, I think, per pie. Um, uh, there's this joint industrial complex in North Korea, Kaesong Industrial Complex, which was during the period of sunshine policy, an effort to bring together North Korean labor with South Korean capital and technology. Um, the laborers weren't paid, they were given their three meals a day, and then some of the Korean companies, as dessert, gave them these choco pies. Um, so these workers, all from the city of Kaesong, North Korean women, because the North Korean government doesn't want large numbers of men altogether, they're young North Korean women, they tasted these things, um, and then within about a week, when they cleaned up the cafeteria, they could find no choco pie wrappers. Right? There were no wrappers. What these, what these young women were doing was they tried this and they thought, this really tastes good, I can sell this on the market. So they started taking the choco pies and selling them on the black market in North Korea, um, fetching a price as high as $9.65 per pie, right? Which would be more than the monthly wage of the average North Korean worker, right? These are North Korean people. So it's not like the people, I mean, you just have to look at South Korea. These people are not genetically incapable of making money for themselves or being capitalists. You know, all they need is a crack, you know, and it could be the training of these workers in China, you know, and, and this is just a clear manifestation of what, what, is, what, they're, what they're capable of. Well, I, I think we have to close there I, um, and move to our next panel, but I can't think of two finer intellects on this issue and, and of a better conversation we could have had. I want to thank you both. Um, we're going to move now to sort of the on-the-ground perspective from World Food Program and Mercy Corps, but please join me in thanking Victor and Andrew.
Okay, thank you. We'll uh, continue on with the, the next, next panel to try and keep on with the schedule. My name is Bill Garvlink. I'm a senior advisor here at CSIS. And with me is Alan Jury, who's the, the head of the Washington Office of the World Food Program, has worked in Rome for the World Food Program for a number of years, and has more than 20 years, 25 years experience working for the United States government, the State Department as well. Uh, to his left is Jeremy Conadyke from the Mercy Corps. He is the Director of Policy and Advocacy there. He's worked for a number of years for Mercy Corps, for the American Refugee Committee. He's worked in Uganda, Southern Sudan, uh, where else? Uh, Guinea and Kosovo, Albania. So he has a, and for the refugee program in the State Department as well. Both of these folks have a long experience in, in dealing with humanitarian issues and uh, food security issues. So what we'll do is, I, <laughs> it's a tough act to follow, this previous group, and I was going to lay a little bit of the background uh, for the humanitarian situation, but I think that's pretty much uh, been done by Andrew and Victor, so I, I won't spend much time. I would just make a, a very, very obvious statement, and that is North Korea is not like Somalia. It is a major crisis, food crisis, but it's a chronic one. And it's been going on for a generation, and it's due to all the reasons that, that have been talked about. A little bit of arable land, lousy policies, antiquated uh, uh, techniques, uh, one that wasn't mentioned, but I'm sure these guys are some rather major post-harvest losses, and just a climate that's not very hospitable to agriculture. You put all of this together, and uh, they've had a hard time with agriculture for years and years and years. Um, I won't go into the details, because these guys will, but in 2000, I think the United States started providing assistance to North Korea in 1996 with food aid. There was some disaster assistance before that, but very small amounts. And the assistance has gone up and down, depending on, on the, the relations between the two countries. In 2009, it was suspended by North Korea. Uh, and those discussions, as was mentioned, are underway now, or were underway and are suspended. Uh, but in 2011, the NGO community, WFP, and the U.S. government uh, did assessments of the food security situation uh, in North Korea, and there are variations on each assessment, but uh, there is very massive malnutrition. A third of the country is chronically malnourished. One out of three kids is malnourished. One out of four uh, pregnant women is malnourished. It's a major chronic problem, and I, that, that shouldn't be underestimated. And so with that, I will stop and uh, turn it over to Alan. Well, thank you, Bill. Uh, it's going to be difficult, I think, for Jeremy and I to be as entertaining as Andrew, and Victor can, can be, uh, feel, feel, as I told Andrew, as I've known for a long time, I feel uh, more than ever before, the, the the imprisonment of being an international civil servant and how far one can go. But I think uh, I think we can give you some of the picture of where we say things are at at present, and and hopefully then have a lively discussion in 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 questions and answers. Uh, I want to hit sort of the main messages first, and then we'll see how much time to go in the details. But I guess I'd have five main messages. First. 
access to food beyond the lean season and after the harvest remains an area of acute concern for the most vulnerable segments of the population. And that lean season in North Korea tends to be around April, May through, through October. So we're just about ready to start another lean season period. Um, we just did complete uh, the latest crop and food supply uh, assessment mission together with our UN partners <coughs> in November of last year. And we did find that the food security and nutritional situation had appeared to have marginally improved. Marginally improved in the context of North Korea can often mean going from really awful to extremely bad. But uh, <coughs> monitors did, in, did continue to see a lot of malnutrition, but I mean in terms of overall harvest and food response, it's slightly better in 2011 the end of 2011 than it was in the big assessment we did at the beginning of 2011. Thirdly, the authorities of North Korea continue to respect the landmark agreement we reached with them in April 2011 on monitoring regions for WFP, which are the toughest, strongest monitoring conditions we have ever <coughs> had, uh, including random access in counties, including access to food markets, which we can now observe, these markets that have been talked about, and including the use of international professional staff who are Korean-speaking uh, is now uh, permitted. The agreement, and I think we can talk about that in one of the significance, and I think a lesson learned from previous, is that the agreement on monitoring was agreed before we agreed to the size of the program. It was not linked to the tonnage. So we couldn't have the North Koreans saying, well, you didn't deliver what you said, so we're not bound by the monitoring agreement. The monitoring agreement is completely independent of what we call our emergency operation, which actually spells out how much we'll do. I think that was a big improvement over previous. It still remains for us a significantly underfunded operation. Uh, it's received about a third a little less than a third of what we asked for at the beginning of this operation, this 12 months emergency operation. But that's $66 million it's received against uh, requirements of uh, over $190 million. Um, the current operation, the 12 month operation, uh, is scheduled to end in March. Uh, we will have a follow on operation. We're in the process of figuring out how, what the size of that will be and so forth. But that's, that's, where we're sort of at. You know, I think the food distribution system has already been kind of well described. I mean, at the heart of it is this public distribution system, which doesn't function very well and in, and in many times does not provide adequate calories. But still, despite that, still represents the majority of food that even the average citizen gets. It, it, the, the other systems, markets, and so forth just aren't that big. But markets and personal production are another factor in supplementing that. And I think we would agree uh, with some of the previous speakers that when the markets have been more flourishing, the capacity of them to adjust some of the problems have been, have been greater than when the currency devaluation that has already been discussed in its depth was, was really the nadir of, of market, of the market role and, and was a major setback. I think we would, would, would agree. Um, but the, the PDS, as we said, remains a chronically short and, it, and it, just, it isn't adequate to the need that is 
demanded. Now, as I said, our latest crop and food security assessment um, does talk about the tonnages available. It concludes that there'll be just under 5.5 million tons of staple food production from a wide variety of sources for the main 2011 harvest and the early 2012 harvests. And that's about an 8.5% increase we're estimating, mainly due to better availabilities of fertilizer, fuel, electricity, and some weather factors. But that still will leave a significant gap in the public distribution and other systems during the lean season that's upcoming. It has already, but it, it, the, the hunger effects are particularly great during the lean harvest season because anybody who can supplement by their own production starts just doesn't have anything by that point, and the markets become, become less available as well. I think the point that, that Andrew made that I think is worth noting is there is the production issue. There's also the health and nutritional situation. And one of the hardest things of measuring had figured how bad is bad in North Korea is the nutritional situation all, situation all the time is so bad. What constitutes an emergency? I mean, we've just done, a, together with UNICEF and uh, other colleagues, another nutritional, the Institute of Child Nutrition conducted a, a basic nutritional survey, a mid and upper arm circumference exercise in November. And it showed a global acute malnutrition rate in the supported institutions that we support, and I'll describe our program in a little bit, of 12.5% and a severe acute malnutrition rate of 1.6%. And the corresponding rates for under two children were even higher at a, at a GAM, a global acute malnutrition of 18.8% and a SAM severe of 4.5. That's, that's, that's very high. And we continue to see very, very high malnutrition rates and have for some time. Uh, the stories that often are told in WFP, and, and Andrew reported one of them, is it is visibly notable that children of the same age in South and North Korea, that the North Korean children are significantly shorter. You can, you can almost add two to three years to get height equivalency, and I think that reflects the, the chronic malnutrition that we, that we see um, going forward. A little bit about what WP has been doing in North Korea. We've been operational since the late 1990s in North Korea, and I'm not going to go through the history of our interventions. I'd, I'd rather focus on really the last year, and I'll answer questions. As I said, in March of 2011, we launched an emergency operation, uh, well, in April, based on an assessment in March uh, of 12 months. Uh, for emergency food assistance to vulnerable groups in, in North Korea. Its t target was a little over 200 million to meet urgent food needs of 3.5 million vulnerable people, primarily focusing on children, pregnant and lactating women and the elderly of 114 counties and nine provinces, of which the most severe hit are the Northeast regions that have been mentioned. We negotiated unprecedented access arrangements, which include um, random access monitoring, uh, which include the use of Korean international speakers, which include access to the markets. We have 25 international staff in North Korea, probably one of the largest international presences of anybody in North Korea. And we've averaged over 300 field monitoring visits per month in the last five months. 
a little bit lower in the last couple months. Weather conditions make it a little bit harder in the winter of North Korea to get, to get around physically. Logistics becomes harder. Uh, We've prior, we obviously have not been doing the full program at 30 percent funding. So we prioritize the most vulnerable, and that, rather than reduce geographical coverage, we tried to focus on the most vulnerable. So we're still reaching most of those counties, but in a much more targeted way, prioritizing the following order, children in orphanage, children in hospitals, children in nurseries, pregnant and lactating women, children in kindergarten, primary school children and the elderly. But down the lower categories, those beneficiaries have often not received rations some month or muchly reduced rations. There's a lot of focus in our program on fortified blended foods, which kind of fits the idea that don't give them the most early divertible things like rice. These are a porridge kind of food. They include fortification. They're fed in an institutional setting, which does increase the, the capacity to monitor. But we have tried to, to prioritize. So I think we've prioritized the right way, but there are people, particularly primary school children and the elderly, who are sort of that last two on the group that frequently don't get the full ration. I mean, if you have a one-third size program of what you plan for, it does have its impact. This program uh, has been interesting, though, and in it is a much broader donor base than we have historically had for DPRK. Sometimes necessity is a mother of invention. The three traditional large supporters of historically large supporters of our food aid operations in North Korea, none of them contributed to this program, Japan, the United States, and South Korea. So our resource base is involved, the European Union, many European countries, Russia, and others. Uh, it's been a more diverse, uh, and in that sense, while inadequate to funding-wise, less vulnerable to political pressures uh, in terms of some of the rays that some of our past operations have. So we're, we're looking at a very serious situation, one that will, I think, need to mean continued food aid. Um, and it really is a situation in which I guess summing up, it, it, it is a, a question of what is an emergency when normalcy is extremely bad and how do you decide how bad is bad? Because it has never been good <clears throat> since the famine situations that, that Andrew said. The nutritional indicators at their best in North Korea are, are, are bad and at worst abysmal. And that's the challenge we face right now. Jeremy? Uh, there's been so much said, I, I wonder if I can just be really brief. Um, I, you know, I think I think Alan has described the situation extremely well. Um, I, I want to give a little bit um, cover some of the same territory, but I want to give a little bit of uh, an overview of um, what what we've seen in terms of the needs, um, a bit of the history of the U.S. NGO involvement, um, and then our, our some of our concerns about uh, uh, about the linkage of the the food aid issue with the, the nuclear negotiations. And I, I won't have to say too much about that because I think Andrew was really eloquent about that already, but, um, and, and vociferous as he always is. <coughs> um, so Mercy Corps, has been, Mercy Corps has been working in uh, North Korea for about 16 years now. We started there in the mid-90s. Um, uh, and it has, you know, it's gone up and down as access uh, and needs have, have ebbed and flowed. Um, but I think what's most relevant to the discussion today is the uh, the food aid program that we mounted uh, 
along with a consortium of U.S. NGOs in 2008-2009. So in 2008-2009, along with WFP, um, so there were, there were sort of two parts to this approach. WFP was one part and the U.S. NGO consortium was the other part. Mercy Corps, along with World Vision, Samaritan's Purse, um, and, um, uh, and uh, Christian Friends of Korea and uh, Global, hmm, sorry, I forget the last one. Um, uh, you always forget one of the five, right? Um, we mounted this relief operation. Perry forgets three. So. Yeah, see, that's right. I'm, 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 as long as that's the bar, I'm doing all right, right? Um, we, we mounted a relief operation um, uh, to provide food to, um, food to the most severely vulnerable uh, within a context of, as Alan said, uh, overall chronic vulnerability. And it's an interesting situation in North Korea. It's not like we're seeing, you know, we've seen in the Horn in the past year where you've got a massive shock leading to um, a massive hit on the, um, a massive hit in the, the, the food security of the population toward, to which they cannot, um, with which they cannot uh, deal and to which they cannot adapt. In North Korea, you don't have that same sort of, there have been shocks, but they tend to be more minor, and the problem is in North Korea, the equilibrium is just so tenuous that even a small shock can knock, can knock things off kilter and, and, and lead, to, lead to really severe problems. And so it doesn't take a once every 60 years drought style or, or level of problem like we've had in the Horn to lead to really severe problems in North Korea. What, what you've got is more of a steady state that is very, very bad and very tenuous, and so any number of small things can knock that off kilter, and then you have extremely vulnerable groups who are suddenly in very, very bad shape. Um, and so what we, what we tried to do in that program was to uh, uh, target those most vulnerable groups, so those who, when there are these shocks, um, will be the first to fall into, into, um, into malnutrition or, or uh, acute malnutrition as opposed to chronic malnutrition, which everybody suffers from. Um, and uh, that program was very successful. That had the, the most intense monitoring requirements that um, any food, food distribution program had had to date. Uh, it ended up, as, um, as everyone in this room probably knows, it, it ended up being suspended by the North Koreans over, um, uh, over some uh, disputes about uh, whether the protocols were being followed. Um, up to that point, um, there was, uh, there was, from our perspective, very good adherence by the North Korean government to the terms that we had set out. Um, very, good, uh, very good evidence through our monitoring that the food was reaching those who it was, uh, you know, those who it was intended to reach and was not being diverted for other purposes. Um, and uh, so it really was a, a, a an, it was proof from, to our allies that something like this could be done. Um, and, and indication that it could be done again. Um, where we are now, uh, I think, is in a, in a bit of a, <coughs> a bit of a difficult spot. The, the 2008, a difficult spot politically, and not just because of the nukes issue. Uh, the 2008-2009 program was based on a protocol negotiated under the Bush administration between the U.S. government and the North Koreans. That protocol has never been renegotiated, um, and that is seen. A, that's seen by the North Koreans as the basis for going forward. Um, are, are the negotiations on monitoring and so on are, were bilateral between the NGOs and, and the North Korean government, but you know, f flowed from the opportunity created by that agreement. Um, that, that is still seen by the North Koreans as the rules of the game. It's not, it doesn't seem to be seen by the Obama administration as the rules of the game. And 
Um, and I think that's part of why we've got the difficulty we have now. Um, you know, there, there's, there's a dispute, for example, over the level of, uh, that should be given. The North Koreans, assuming that they're still operating under that protocol, are saying 330. The, the Obama administration is saying 240. Um, it's not clear where that number comes from, and so there's some, there's some problems over that. Um, so it's, it's, it's clear that there's a, there's, a need to, there's a need to look at that issue again. Um, and what is the, the basis for the diplomatic, um, sort of what is, what is the basis for the, the, the food negotiations between the USG and the North Koreans in that sense? Um, it's also clear that, as Andrew has said, and I, I can't add much to that, but it, we have real concerns about the fact that this gets linked to the nuclear issue. Um, the, the, the hungry child knows no politics line, of course, you know, gets thrown around a lot, and it's a real shame um, that that, that that doesn't seem to be the case right now. Um, I mean, Bosworth, after he stepped down, acknowledged that this was being, that these, that these had been linked. He also acknowledged that the food aid needs were real and that the U.S. assessment, which I think it's notable, still hasn't been released. Uh, the U.S. assessment verified the need that all of the other assessments had, had found as well. Um, I want to respond a little bit to something Mr. Cha said, um, where I think he implied that the, the, the assessments that had been done had been sort of shown a script as opposed to um, seeing something, seeing real needs. Um, and it's a, he's left, so he, can, he can't defend himself, so this is a little bit unfair, I suppose. But, um, but you know, I, I took his comments to imply that um, the, the fact that all of these groups had gone through and, and seen the same sort of need was indicative that they'd, they, they'd seen something staged. I, you know, we had, um, we had very professional and very experienced aid workers, nutritionists, uh, food security experts on that assessment mission. What they saw was genuine. We're very, very confident of that. Um, I think in most, in, in most cases, if you had four different assessment missions, missions go and look at the same problem and all identify the same problem, identify the same challenges, you would say that that's probably a good indication that those are real and legitimate challenges, and I think that's the case here. Um, the, the program that, that, we, that we ran in 2008-2009 and that we have proposed to the U.S. government again um, would be similar to the WFP program in its mechanics, uh, working through the, uh, through the public distribution system and through, um, through institutions such as uh, nurseries and orphanages and hospitals and so on where the most vulnerable parts of the population uh, are often concentrated. Uh, it would have very rigorous monitoring, it would have very rigorous signage and branding. Uh, we would have, uh, we have, you know, we would have the, the right to have uh, as many Korean speakers as we could fit within the, um, within the, the, the staff levels that have been authorized. There'd be no limits on that within the staff level authorized. Uh, uh, the negotiations that we've had with the North Koreans over our monitoring and our access under such a prospective program are, are even, they go a little bit further even than we had in 2008. So we feel very confident that, uh, that this kind of a program would be well monitored, that we could play that monitoring role well, and that the food would get where it needed to go. Um, so there's a situation where there's queer need. Everyone recognizes the need. Um, we feel, and WFP feels um, through its present activities, very confident that the monitoring system that we've negotiated can work. Um, that it that it was working prior to uh, prior to the challenges in 2008 2009, which um, which I think we were, I think we're past now, um, and that that there's uh, if this is truly about responding to a legitimate humanitarian need, then that should go forward. 
Um, and so it's, it's disappointing that that hasn't happened yet. And we've, um, um, you know, I, a very, very good first step would be for the government, for the U.S. government, to release the findings of its own assessment so that we can see what they found and if they verified the same need as we, as we understand they did. So um, I'll leave it there. Thanks. Um, I was going to ask both of you guys a question about the, the monitoring and evaluation and this sort of thing, and I think you've both answered that. So I'll, I'll just ask one question that's a little bit different. Um, and emergency assistance is very nice for North Korea. It doesn't solve the problem from the development side of things. So what would you just to speculate a little bit, little bit about what should we be doing or the international community be doing beyond purely providing humanitarian assistance? That's for both of you. Uh, um, it's not an easy question. I, I mean, you know, in a, in a normal setting, you would say uh, we should also be doing developmental activities, resiliency activities. I mean, I, I, you know, that, that's not something that's been explored in the same way with the North Koreans as, as we were able to explore in other settings. I mean, I think, um, and, and in a way, the sort of scope and duration of the international assistance commitment to North Korea is not something that, yeah. that we have a say in. I mean, we, we are aiming to meet the humanitarian need. Um, in most settings, we would also try and address the drivers of that to the extent we're able to, um, but that's, that's a much bigger question for us right now. Um, yeah. yeah. I think the crop and food supply assessment mission that just completed recommended in addition to sort of basic things related to food and nutritional assistance, some small scale things in seed and seed stock that can help on agricultural mm -hmm. production that would have a modest effect. But it is, I, I think, giving greater liberalization to the market, letting alternative mechanisms develop so that they're not so dependent on the PDS system is probably the long-term solution. Now that, as international humanitarians, we're not really in a position to, to make that happen. But, but it, it, it does concern, I think I share Jeremy's, and Andrew, of course, can say it more explicitly, what message are we sending North Koreans um, when we say it's about needs and it's about assessment and it's about food security and basically regardless what they do about needs or assessment or food security when they're doing well in nuclear talks they've got more food than they know what right. to do with and when they're not there isn't any right. and so do what we do not what we say uh, I think part of the reason that uh, we've got better monitoring conditions in this agreement is that a lot of the bilaterals who were prepared the North the South Koreans and the Chinese dried up and the North Koreans pretty much realized that WFP was the only game in town and they couldn't you know fall back on other people mm -hmm. and it it, it gave somewhat more leverage, I think. They realized, well, I think they were taken aback. They tried their usual thing with this assessment, which is come in and tell us the need, and then let's agree on a number, and then let's discuss the monitoring conditions later, and we went with the exact opposite. We said, let's get agreement on the monitoring conditions, and then we'll talk about the size of the program. I mean, we mm -hmm. just, we knew that that was imperative for our, our donors, but, uh, mm -hmm. I, I think broader structural transformation is what is what is needed to to free up the market. And I think if there, I think there are some some modest things that can be done mm -hmm. uh, in the agricultural implements and mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. seed and other fields. But it will be difficult to get the support for that if there isn't a sense that there are the conditions there that 
that, that would allow whatever those marginal, those small investments to be to, to realize their full potential. Yeah, I mean, I, I'd, I'd agree with that, all, all of that. And I think, you know, things like donations of, of fertilizer, there, there's, some, uh, there's some possibilities for things like that that would help to increase agricultural yields that could reduce um, dependence on, uh, could reduce dependence on aid. Um, you know, another point I would, I would make, I think any, any sort of negotiate, prospective negotiation over something like that, a more aggressive program like that, it is going to depend on good faith and confidence coming out of this level of negotiations and where we're at now. And, and, and I think there's a, it, the North Koreans asked for food in 2011. They allowed in four of the most rigorous assessment missions that have ever been done. Um, that, it, I mean, I, you could argue that's a sign of good faith. That's a sign that they were serious about wanting this to go forward and for the U.S. to still be uh, hemming and hawing over whether this can happen and, you know, saying that we're still reviewing the, um, the, the, the assessment findings and so on, or it's, I think it undermines the sort of, it's, it's not a signal of the kind of confidence that we would need to set a, a better platform going forward. Now, I, we're going to take two or three questions and then we'll let these guys address them. So please state who you are and your very short question uh, as soon as you get a microphone. Roberta? Up, oh, there's a microphone coming. Um, I'll try to be as fast as I can. Uh, and that is, um, has any effort or thought gone into trying to have one set of monitoring standards rather than you're all trying to negotiate different ones with the North Koreans, which give them a lot of leverage? WFP, the UN, and then the NGOs, and the EU, you all have different, and you, you get stronger monitoring conditions, and the U.S. will have its. Um, but wouldn't it be much better if there were an effort to have one set of standards that the North Koreans know or adhere to and they know that's it for food aid. And the second question is a rather controversial one. Don't hold your hands up, oh my God. Just take it in for a second. Um, and that is in the first, you, you mentioned the vulnerable groups in North Korea and, in the f and, it, and that you target your mm -hmm. aid to. And in the first panel, uh, Andrew raised the question of the camps. Mm -hmm. um, and I just wondered, I mean, I think one of the most vulnerable, or the most vulnerable group, are the prisoners. If there are 200,000, they're on starvation uh, rations. Uh, is there any way of thinking about how one can raise reaching them with food aid um, in any kind of dis uh, negotiation? I know that's not easy. That's all you, Alan. In the back there. In Zhang Cho with the Voice of America, since uh, late last year, State Department has been mentioning of nutritional assistance to DPR Korea rather than food aid. I'd like to ask Mr. Jeremy, um, from what you have gathered, mm -hmm. is DPRK um, accepting nutritional aid, like fortified foods, mm -hmm. other than cereals? Would they be willing to accept it? And is the nutritional food a better commodity to help the most needy people in North Korea and to monitor the distribution. Hi, my name is uh, Ryan Poya, and I was uh, asking about um, how do you, how do you, with your different organizations uh, spread out throughout the country, especially in the Northeast, how do you decouple your operations from, say, support of the regime? 
i.e., could the regime use your organizations as a, as a way to strategically communicate that they are supporting their own people by using your organizations, i.e., strengthening the regime? Okay. Uh, I'll start. Um, <coughs> Roberta, to your first question, uh, I think that the monitoring standards that we and WFP have are, are extremely similar. I, I mean, we didn't negotiate them together exactly, but they're, they're very, very parallel to the best of my understanding. I, I'm not sure there are any notable differences between them. So I think we basically do have what you're describing, even if it's some, through slightly different, different tracks. Um, <coughs> on the other one, um, I, you know, we... I think that's probably a negotiation that would need to be carried out by someone other than, than humanitarian groups. I think that that's not something we would we would be able to broach. Um, you know, we we work in the areas we work in areas that the that we and the donor and the North Korean government jointly agree um, are areas with legitimate need in which we can access, and that sets the parameters for where we're able to. To focus and, and, and who we're able to reach, and we work very hard within that to make sure that within those parameters we're reach, reaching people who are legitimately in need, and we've and we're confident that we are. But those are the parameters that we're working in. Um, the the woman from VOA, I'm glad you I'm glad you asked that. This has been <coughs> this I think again is another another area of confusion that arises out of the issue of not negotiating a new protocol. So under, under the, the old protocol, it was, uh, it, it was a, a program focused more on general distribution. Now the, the, the rhetoric from the U.S. government side is more about nutrition. Um, but that hasn't ever been, that hasn't been uh, agreed between the two sides, per se, that that's the new focus. Now what does that look like? What does a nutrition program look like? I think that it, it doesn't necessarily look hugely different, frankly. Um, you know, we're still, uh, we're still focusing on the most vulnerable. We're still just, uh, you know, the, the, the commodities that we're proposing to, that we'd be proposing to distribute under a nutrition program, corn, soy blend, bulgur, wheat, soybean, soybeans, vegetable oil, um, things that are not the most, uh, they're not the most sexy food, they're not the most desired food, um, but they're very nutritious, and they will, add, you know, they will helpfully supplement the, the diets of, of those most vulnerable groups that I talked about earlier. Um, <clears throat> it's not like, you know, the, the, a nutrition program doesn't mean that we're going to, you know, carpet the, the country in plumpy nut bars or something like that. It, it's, um, uh, it, it's, uh, it's similar commodities to what we use in, in most sort of food programs anywhere. But I think the rhetoric around that is a little bit confusing. And again, I think that rhetoric is being used basically politically rather than to describe what the aid program actually is. Um, to our, the best of our understanding, um, the, the program that we proposed and those commodities that we proposed were perfectly acceptable to the government of North Korea. Um, on the last point, um, the last question, uh, you know, the, this was something that the, the U.S. government negotiated with the North Koreans in terms of signage and branding. Uh, it's not something that uh, it's something that, and, and then we had, we adhere to what they negotiated, which was um, that you know anywhere where there's a distribution of these commodities, anywhere where um, <coughs> anywhere where there's distribution of these commodities, the the transport, the, the transportation for these commodities, the, the, the you know the sacks that these commodities would get 
carried in um, at an individual household level are all marked with uh, US NGOs, gift of the American people. It's very clear where, it, where the aid is coming from. So. Yeah, just very quickly, yeah, agree on the monitoring standards. Um, they are pretty close. I think the biggest challenges have not been monitoring standard differences between the NGOs and WFP when the NGOs have had a project. It has been some bilateral donations which have been uh, um, given, that is not the U.S., that have given been more as a political factor to, in connection with some broader deal um, that often don't have really much monitoring standards at all. Um, but uh, I, I think I, I think there is there are some challenges here in the sense that, you know, some of these negotiations, they're, they, they do get tied up in, in who's negotiating them, and that's also a, a challenge. Uh, the prisoner issue is an interesting one. Um, I think this might be one where we, you know, I hate to put something on fellow agencies, but uh, it, if there was to be a dialogue on this, I think perhaps most suited to it would be the International Committee of the Red Cross, who has a treaty mandate to look into conditions of detention and who either might be able to uh, do programs themselves or win openings that could be then developed by broader international. Um, I think they're in the best position. They're the most depoliticized. They have the clearest mandate. If there were to be success, and I don't want to make it sound like there's a high probability, I think that would be the vehicle that would make the greatest possibility of such. I just wanted to share that on nutritional foods, we know the North Koreans will accept us because that's essentially what our program is. Mm -hmm. And in a sense, our prioritization has meant that, the, that the most of the general food distribution of our program has fallen off and almost exclusively is locally blended, nutritionally fortified foods, these kinds of food factories that take uh, wheat and soy and oil, blend them together in a kind of porridge or mix that's used in institutional feeding. Uh, and I think we have had discussions with our colleagues in the U.S. government, and while the phrase nutritional assistance was occasionally interpreted to mean things like vitamins and just like biscuits, we understand that the U.S. position on what nutritional assistance means does include fortified and blended foods, which essentially is most of what our program is now. Had it been the size of the 2008 agreement, it would have been a lot more than that. There would have been a bigger general food distribution element. But if it's, if it's operating at the size of the current program, uh, you know, it would, it would be that. And I think that it is a big challenge of the negotiations because I, I think if this is about food assistance, I, I tend to believe it should be about what the need is now, not what a commitment the United States made three years ago. I mean, it should be about what the need is now. We, I mean, our whole program for the whole year, if it had been 100 percent funded by the U.S., was not asking for more than 300,000 tons. So we wouldn't have been asking for the balance of the 2008 program. Um, and indeed, we would like to see a more diversified thing. I think we found that when our program is overwhelmingly the U.S., the risk is that the DPRK will see it in a very political sense, which has its own challenges to it. And uh, let's see, the last one question was on, oh, the, the linkages. I think it's, you know, it's almost impossible to completely eliminate the challenge in the sense that if you feed the most vulnerable and they happen to be orphanages in a totalitarian society, those orphanages are run by the state as is everything else. Could somebody take credit for the fact that the orphanages have food 
sure, but I think the fact that the markings are very clear, and indeed we've had times when they've sh closed, reduced the scope of our <coughs> programs because there has been embarrassment over the proliferation of U.S. flag burlap sacks that have basically the only way that the symbols of the United States are available are off our food bags, mm -hmm. and they've actually appeared in quite a number of areas in the country that uh, the North Koreans would prefer symbols of U.S. influence would not appear in. So we do a lot with the markings. I think most people have a fairly clear sense it comes from international assistance, and it is institutionally primarily orphanages, schools, and other <coughs> sites, and using commodities, blended foods, and so forth that are, that are not considered the most desirable in terms of we don't have, a, I mean, I, I wouldn't say we've never had any, but we have virtually no whole grain rice, which of course is the preferred commodity uh, and the one that is basically taken by the elites off the top, uh, that that is produced in North Korea. And so by not having a lot of, even the, some rice we send in uh, is in a blended, by the time it's actually consumed, it's actually blended in the local factories. We don't distribute whole grain rice, and that's a conscious choice as a result of an effort to try to, to uh, both, both target the individuals that are in the most vulnerable way and decrease the risk of diversion. It's a common food assistance, not just tactic, not just in, in North Korea, that uh, self-targeting through selection of commodities that are, are less marketable <coughs> and more usable only if consumed, more valuable only if consumed in the way they intended. It's been a, a, a target of food assistance around the world for, for a number of years from both the NGO and WP side. Okay, we'll take three more questions here in the second row. Randall Spadoni from World Vision. We're another NGO working in North Korea. I wanted to mention two key messages from the last panel before they had to leave. Number one from Dr. Cha was that uh, a bunch of different missions came through last year. Basically the net result or the net impression from those missions were that the organizations were well-intentioned but basically naively used by North Korea to convey a message and that includes two missions from the UN, the EU, and humanitar U.S. humanitarian organizations but doesn't include the U.S. government because they never reported. Uh, and the net result from that, the net message, was that uh, we created NGO fatigue here. So obviously something got miscommunicated here. Uh, the second, second point from uh, Andrew Noctios was that we know that food was diverted. So these are two impressions that organizations working in North Korea are leaving in Washington, D.C. Why, why is this message not being conveyed correctly and what needs to change in order for us to be able to speak up well for the people of North Korea? Hi, I'm uh, Dan Ward. I'm a uh, DTLT State Department. Um, per the last lecture, um, should the regime falter, which they seem to think it, it will, uh, what magnitude of a humanitarian crisis do you envision? Has there been any planning in your organizations uh, to prepare for that? Um, Alan, one for you and then one for Bill, too. Um, Alan, on the uh, humanitarian assistance side, what we haven't spoken much about the role of South Korea and China in the humanitarian assistance programming 
that goes into North Korea. Do they have a role? How big is it? What's it focused on? And then, Bill, using your diplomatic experience, if we're the, the big what if, so if this country collapses in the next 12 months, uh, are we going to deal, will the United States look to deal with this in a similar way that we dealt with East Germany? Or will we work primarily through South Korea to, to go in? And, and what happens if there's a, uh, an unfolding of a larger humanitarian disaster after the country collapses? What will China and what will our role with China likely be looking like? Thanks. All right. Um, I think it, it's, it is very challenging because the argument, there is an argument by the skeptics that while potentially true is impossible to disprove. And the argument is North Korea is a totalitarian state, therefore it is impossible, they can conceal information if they want to, therefore nothing you can do can possibly overcome their capacity to conceal. While potentially true, I will not dispute that that could be true, it is impossible to refute because no matter how much access you get, how much information you get, and how many places you go, the argument can still be made it is a totalitarian state, absolutely. And the manipulation, I mean, you get monitors and people will say, yes, you could speak in Korean, but there are state security in the, in the communities. Is there state security in the communities? Absolutely. It's a totalitarian state. I think it's interesting in the previous <coughs> panel, I would just note that while Victor said we hear the same stories, Andrew said based on interviews of refugees, interviews of defectors, interviews of a completely different sort of reinformation than we do, we got exactly the same information. The situation is extremely bad in Northeast, not so bad around Pyongyang, and kind of middling in the other parts of the countries. If you look at the map that come out of all these assessments of the counties and the provinces, they closely parallel that account. Uh, it is, it is, but it is challenging, and I think uh, we, we, the other thing is the historic challenge. As we get better, you still can find on any food aid situation, what happened 10 years ago wasn't as good as what happened last year. But did it happen 10 years ago? Yes. Um, and I think we, we have to just keep telling the story of what we have monitoring. But there's a, there's a, there's a circular reasoning that at a point is almost impossible to refute. And uh, I, I think we can perhaps I think probably we should do a better job as a community in correlating the information we get from our assessments with those completely different approaches that rely on refugee accounts and other groups because in fact they're not all that different but they tend to have two completely information channels. Some groups of people get it almost exclusively from those accounts and others from these more official assessments and I think probably messaging wise we could, we could combine them together better. Contingency planning, uh, certainly we have not attempted to try to do a contingency planning on a full collapse of the state of North Korea. It's not something I think a humanitarian organization can ever really do. Uh, I, I think that the information we've generated from assessments 
provide a rich set of data for governments and organizations that have the capacity to think about that that would give them a better sense than they would have without the data that we make publicly available. Um, China and South Korea have in the past been significant players. Uh, and indeed, one of the challenges was particularly when South Korea is pursuing its sunshine policy, which has changed significantly. And, and certainly one of our dialogue, frank dialogue with the governor of South Korea, um, has been how can we, if you give food aid or if you resume food aid, how can we link it more with the international multilateral regime to have the same monitoring standards and to have it less linked to, or, or perceived to be linked to unconditional rewards for certain political behaviors. South Korea, in its current phase, has, has been quite skeptical of food aid, has not been providing food aids. The Chinese picture is very difficult to get at. There have been signs that the Chinese, there, and, and I really call this off the record completely because it's, it's, it's not information that you know, anyone can verify, but there have been indications that the Chinese from time to time have played hardball with terms of trade for their food assistance to try to encourage the North Koreans to perhaps be more reformist in their approaches to agriculture and food. But the, the, it is, it is a, there is no direct information. And indeed, in our food assessments, one of the hardest issues and the ones that are most difficult when we do food balance sheets is trying to attempt to determine how much food is available from external trade. And it's not so hard to do it from the commercial markets of the West because you, can, you have a pretty good sense of what the North Koreans' uh, credit is and what they can buy. But with China and, and to a lesser extent Russia, which they don't get so much for, the degree to which those terms of trade will be modified by political factors that might allow the North Koreans to get more or less food is, is just impossible, uh, is very difficult to know. So the, the Chinese, I think, are a significant factor, but it's a, it's a blurry line between what constitutes commercial trade and what constitutes food aid. And, uh, and it's a mix of, it's, I, I would say it's a mix. But they're a significant factor in the overall food balance sheet. They're a neighboring country. It would be natural for trade. It, it's a normal, normal part of the relationship. Um, first, I want to just say Global Resource Services was the fifth agency. Um, sorry about that earlier. I, He'll be I, fired his head. I, 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 we, we need to show respect to all our partners. So, um, um, to, to your question. Um, I think Alan's absolutely right that to some degree we're being asked to prove a negative, and I think that I think that even Mr. Chaw's the way he the way he framed that remark was, well, you all went and you all saw the same thing, and you all came back and told us the same thing. The implication being, ergo, you were shown something, you know, created, um, and um, you know, if if you're if if the assumption is um, you know that you know if the assumption is whether or not there's need, um, or the need that you're the, the need that you've been shown is not real need, it's something you're just being you know shown in a staged way, then you can never have a result to that kind of a survey that's going to satisfy that kind of a critique, because if you see real need, then oh well that's just what you were shown, 
Um, there, there's no there's no way you can disprove that. But I mean, you know, I think that again, as I as I said um, in some of my initial remarks, I mean, we feel very confident. You know, we did not we did not have people on these assessment teams who this was their first international trip. I mean, these were people who these were people with long experience. I mean, our, our director of food security, who's based here in D.C., who has done these sorts of assessments everywhere in the world, um, has designed uh, food security programs for more countries than um, than I'll ever probably go to in my life. Um, uh, we had uh, nutrition experts who were absolutely world class. Um, we had Korean speakers on the, you know, within the assessment teams. So we, you know, we were very confident in the quality of what was being translated or what was, you know, what the the, the, the communications we were able to have with um, the, the the institutions and individuals that we interacted with. So, you know, there's a point at which you can never disprove that. The best you can do is to is to have the best sort of and most credible team and the most credible process um, that you can put together. And we feel that we did and we feel very confident in that. Um, but I think there is, you know, there's a certain degree to which, and I've certainly, you know, seen this in, in some of my um, discussions and meetings around North Korea and town that, you know, there is a degree to which there is just a resistance to hearing that and a resistance to seeing anything that comes out of um, that sort of a mission to North Korea as credible because it happened in North Korea. And there's no way you can overcome that. Um, yeah. I just, uh, just uh, I, Jeff, there's no way in the world I can answer that question other than to say if this regime doesn't last, it will be a process, people will notice, and the concerned countries will certainly talk about how to approach all of this. Johanna? I, I was just gonna say, on Victor's behalf, I don't yeah. think he meant to start anything. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> he, he, And he knows yeah. that government officials are hearing the briefings, that they have had a number that ended up reflecting the same thing. So I, I think that also you've had some new um, mm. surveys that have been probably more deep and you've done things mm. differently, as Alan said. You've yeah. struck different kinds of monitoring agreements yeah. and that is gonna make a difference. Yeah. Um, so I, don't th I just yeah. don't think he was in any way questioning the need. I think he was just saying, there, yeah, it is tough yeah. to take that. Yeah, on. I think all of us have tried to be more transparent. I mean. The, f the full report of both the mission we did in last year, the full 30, 40 page report, and the, this, the crop and food supply assessment mission, which mm -hmm. is a little bit narrow in its scope, but still significant. You can read the full report, you can see the methodology. They're all available on our website. You can find anything mm -hmm. about our assessments uh, on by going to WP and clicking on countries and clicking on the DPRK, we do call it the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, uh, and, uh, and, and, and finding those documents. And hopefully by, by being as transparent about how we got to where we are, right. where we went, what we did, what our methodology, people can see that. And I, I think there is a, a risk in the short briefings, it's a good point, that you, you summarize the highlights, and the trouble with summarizing the highlights is that things blend together. And that's yeah. why when I've done these briefings to Congress, I mean, I did one to the Senate Foreign Relations, and I basically left the full copy of the assessment mission and said, I, I really can't go over the whole thing. I mean, there's a lot of detail here, but it's all there. You want to look at it. You know, transparency has been key, and, and we are more, much more transparent about our assessments than I would have said mm -hmm. five or six years ago. I think the same mm -hmm. could be said of the AGO, but yeah. I can't speak for Jeremy. No, I mean, I, I'd agree with that. And I think, I think perhaps one of the other, one of the other things is we are, 
we, we have made real strides in the last few years in terms of the, the, the monitoring arrangements and, and the assurances that we're able to have now that food is getting where it needs to go. But I think we're still battling against perceptions that are based much, much further back. Um, and and are, you know, not to say that those aren't, those aren't real risks, as they are in any environment where we do food distribution. Anywhere you do food distribution, anywhere, there is a risk of, you know, there are risks of diversion. You need to have controls against diversion. You need to have rigorous monitoring. It's not a problem that's unique to North Korea. Um, um, but I think because of some very well-publicized problems earlier on, that still dominates and kind of defines the perception um, in D.C. And so it's a constant struggle to actually demonstrate, no, what we have now is, is quite different from that. Um, and I think the fact that the, the way that the 2008-09 program ended um, overshadowed the fact that actually um, for you know, for the 10 or so months that that was running, it was um, the most successful, uh, most effective monitoring system that had happened to date, but that kind of gets lost because of the, the way it ended, so. Well, I think our time has expired, and you've been very patient for a couple of hours, but I think both panels were, were very interesting, and please join me in thanking uh, Jeremy and Alan. I think we do have copies of our most recent donor update on North Korea. Did we bring them? I don't know if we have some. Do we have them? They're out right outside. I think there's enough copies for everybody. 